I face the unknown every day. I quickly move from one human experience of trauma and acute illness to the next without hesitation. I search for joy and bow my head in sorrow while reflecting on the magnitude of suffering. I am not a hero. Behind the N95 mask, goggles, and face shield, I am just like you. While you look to me for comfort in your worst moment, I am expected to be strong and resilient in every moment. I too have family and friends that I have not seen. I have felt isolated and alone. My sacrifices are not unlike yours. In the beginning, there were howls of gratitude and thrilling flyovers of fighter jets. Police cars, fire trucks, and ambulances illuminated the dark sidewalk in front of the ER in solidarity. My face, battered and bruised by the tight-fitting N95 mask, was streaked with tears of raw emotion. I was frustrated with the hour-by-hour changes necessary to ensure our safety. Going to work felt like going to war against an unknown virus we did not fully understand. Watching the anxiety and fear and eyes of sick patients struggling to breathe scared me. The expectation that I could continue to reassure patients that everything was going to be okay was difficult and weighed heavily on my heart. There were frightening moments of uncertainty, uncharacteristic days of silence and empty hallways, harrowing moments of resuscitation. The days, weeks, and months of the pandemic dragged on. As my colleagues started getting sick, the hospital reached critical capacity and patients continued to die Any glimmer of hope was extinguished by exhaustion and grief. Today, I can clearly visualize a new normal, while my voice is still muffled by the thick filter of an N95 mask, and I am still required to have my temperature checked before reporting to work, my eyes have softened and my spirit has lifted. But, make no mistake, I am not blind to the reality that my job is far from over. The internal incident command center at Denver Health remains active. To date, we have had a total of 2,051 COVID-19 admissions and 1,979 discharges. We have administered 74,806 doses of vaccine to staff patients, and members of the public currently eligible. While I continue to work in the emergency department, primarily on weekends and holidays, my full-time position is representing the hospital in the Colorado legislature. In politics, when the eyes have it, the motion passes. The motion before us now is the passage of time. We must give ourselves the grace to heal the strength to recover, and the courage to move forward. All those in favor, say aye. That was Lisa Ward sharing her story, The Eyes Have It. Lisa has spent countless hours treating COVID-19 patients in the emergency room, providing comfort and hope in times of desperate need. And while not all of us have been in her exact position, her pain and loss might feel familiar. 
on this special episode of Radio Ed, we're exploring the ways we've struggled, adapted, and overcome, whether that's through adopting crucial telehealth technology for therapy, leaning on our four-legged friends, or turning to the arts as an outlet. These are the stories that have shaped the last year. Nicole Militello talked with University of Denver psychology professors April Alexander and Kim Gorgans about the toll the pandemic has taken. This month marks one year since coronavirus shut down the United States. Businesses closed their doors, some for the last time, students went home for spring break and never returned to the classroom, and many of us were separated from our loved ones for months. While the virus spread rapidly, another crisis was growing alongside it, a mental health crisis. Lisa Ward's experience in the ER that you heard at the beginning of this episode is just one of so many stories. When the country retreated inside last year, frontline workers showed up, working harder than ever. They're overworked, exhausted, and many are facing serious burnout. This is something April Alexander has seen a friend experience firsthand over the past year. Yeah, one of my um, close friends locally is a nurse uh, who has been on the front lines um, uh, since this pandemic has hit. And not only has she seen the effects of COVID on individuals in the community, she's seen losses of uh, individuals in the community uh, due to COVID and even colleagues. Uh, so thinking about them and how they've really had to sustain over time, uh, she had to also witness so many people quit uh, because uh, the mental health toll was too too much, uh, too much to bear during this time. Um, so you know, I, I think valuing the importance of our frontline workers and their mental health has become even more salient during this uh, moment in time. And Kim Gorgans points out the harsh reality when we consider that mental health toll. And April will agree that this is a group of responders, those frontline folks, this is healthcare, EMS, uh, to some degree, this is also law enforcement and corrections, but these folks with these frontline jobs have a history of not accessing mental health services when they need it. We don't meet their needs on our best day. And so imagining the toll of the accumulation of 12 months now plus of stress and mental wear is really hard to imagine. And it's not just the frontline workers who are feeling run down. New studies are revealing just how serious the mental health toll has been for everyone. Yeah, APA recently uh, released a Stress in America study that they do on a regular basis. And in this recent study, they showed that eight out of 10 Americans are experiencing COVID-related stress. Uh, So we're seeing a toll that it's taking on the mental health of individuals through depression, anxiety, um, this experience of loss. I'll just add a big exclamation point. Eight of 10 people is a number that we've never seen before. I mean, it's really staggering. Uh, This was a study, I think, from January of this year, 2021, from the Kaiser Family Foundation that found that four of 10 people met the actual diagnostic criteria for anxiety or depression. So it's not even as if people have a passing kind of malaise. These are clinically significant disruptive problems. And one of four, 26% of folks endorse suicidality. So it's a, a mental health crisis on a scale we've never seen in several lifetimes. Uncertainty is a big player in all of this. When the country went into lockdown, misinformation started swirling. With little knowledge about this new deadly virus, it was unclear just how long this might last, something that gave a lot of people false hope that this would all be done and over with soon. 
but Gorgon shares how one group of people might have actually had a more realistic picture of what was to come. People who are depressed actually have a more accurate appraisal of the world and of risk. And it's the rest of us who have a, uh, you could argue even delusional optimism. And like April said, that was me the whole time, listening month to month, assuming that things would be more normal uh, at some end point. It'd be next quarter is gonna be back in person and student life will look normal and I'll be able to see my students again. Well, not next quarter, but I bet it's gonna be the quarter after that. That delusional optimism, as Gorgans calls it, shocked a lot of people when they saw major tech companies in the first few weeks of the pandemic announcing their employees wouldn't return to work until some point in 2021. Which at that time was like, what are you talking? We're going to be back to normal a few weeks from now. This is just a flu season, right? We totally misgaged the severity of the problem from the outset. Uh, but to see the folks who more accurately gauged the risk and planned ahead, it was absurd at the time. And I think the folks who are struggling the most have the most accurate picture of how long and drawn out this will be, has been. And now as we pass the one year mark, we can see that accurate picture. The greatest loss, more than half a million deaths. But we're also experiencing missed milestones, canceled weddings, missed graduations, no vacations to look forward to, and the list goes on. We know those milestones are a huge deal. Um, so I think of all of our uh, college students who are uh, first generation and you had this whole graduation planned in your head of uh, your parents and your loved ones and your grandparents showing up to graduation to celebrate you. And now that's different. Uh, you're not able to march through this uh, stadium or, or the field or wherever, um, and it looks very different. Um, so those losses are important. Um, and, and again, I think people were adaptive and found some different ways. Even our graduation was virtual and we still were able to get more people to connect than maybe ever before uh, because you didn't have those travel barriers. Um, but we can't discount those losses. I, I do see people brush them off of, oh, what's the big deal about your 16th birthday? No, that's a milestone that we just um, amplify in our culture so much. It's everywhere. It's in media. We talk about it, of that day that you get to drive and uh, have your driver's license. And so when we miss out on those things, again, I think that does contribute to this uh, phase and era of grief and loss. There's such an element of loneliness embedded in all of this. It's uh with grief, it's a social experience and we mourn in a social way and we gather as a group and uh, with our loved ones to celebrate the life of someone that we've lost. We gather as a group to celebrate a quinceanera. We celebrate as a group to celebrate graduations. We've lost that piece. So there's an element of loneliness to all of these experiences that uh, is, I think the, uh, it's the tie that binds all of these kind of sentinel moments in our lives. And we uh, really have not been well prepared to weather this challenge solo. And COVID has intensified the cracks in our society. Data shows communities of color being disproportionately impacted by COVID, women bearing the consequences of the switch to remote work and learning, and lack of support for men and women who are incarcerated. And those are just a few. As we're seeing the vaccine rollout, uh, we're seeing, uh, again, people of color not being high on the list for the COVID vaccines or not being uh, getting access to it as they should be. Um, and if we're taking kind of that intersectional framework, just making sure we're supporting individuals with disabilities, um, our unhoused individuals, 
I've been speaking out a lot about incarceration, uh, that um, in our states, uh, we have not prioritized incarcerated individuals on the vaccine list, uh, which has been a CDC recommendation, which other states have done. And um, again, making sure that we're humanizing the people who are incarcerated because uh, their, their safety is gonna be a part of our safety. Uh, that we've already seen the South Africa strain go into our Colorado prisons, and that's going to be a risk to our whole community. And so as we're kind of thinking of COVID, we also need to think about uh, the individuals who have been historically marginalized and how they're continuing to be marginalized in this moment and make sure any of our kind of plans for access and supports and social safety nets include those marginalized populations. And when work, home, school, all the areas of our life collide into one space for a year, problems become inflamed. Yeah, with all those kind of added stressors in one space, that's where we are seeing the heightened rates of substance use um, in the household, domestic violence, child abuse, um, uh, because people are stressed, uh, people are under duress, and they don't have these kind of boundary spaces uh, that uh, for that kid, they could go away from school and have some sense of um, protection uh, and be around uh, people who would care for them. Uh, but now that they're at home and all these um, stressors are exacerbated uh, in this one confined space, uh, we're seeing all of these, um, again, social ills being amplified, whether it is substance abuse, domestic violence, or child abuse. And I've been talking about that quite a bit. Um, I, myself and my students have been writing on it. I've been talking to members of Congress about uh, what is this going to look like when we start uh, returning back to work and school? Uh, that uh, now these kids will be around mandatory reporters um, and we will see them and have eyes on them and know about their abuse. And so what supports are we going to have to have, uh, again, in this maybe post-COVID uh, world in order to make sure people are having the care that they need um, in order to process everything that was going on at home. Now, more than one year into the pandemic, America is starting to see some signs of hope. More than 133 million people have been vaccinated, and President Biden has said all Americans should be eligible for the vaccine by May. A glimmer of normalcy. But will the return to the new normal be as easy as some think? Or could we see more mental health concerns come with it? Yeah, I always think of the six or seven-year-old. Uh, who's been on virtual learning for so long? <laughs> what is it going to be like to be going back into a classroom and you're like, what is this? Uh, and so being, true. Uh, overstimulated, uh, not knowing the classroom, uh, physical classroom norms, mm -hmm. uh, that that's going to be probably jarring for a lot of uh, young kids. Uh, and so there's going to be this level of re-socialization or socialization that's going to have to occur uh, in the months to come. And people are going to be skittish. This is a scary time. You think of uh, you know, throwing open the gates and we're all running for the grocery store, <laughs> throwing our masks in the air, celebrating like we would at graduation or something. But uh, people are fearful and the uh, it's a set of really advanced, sophisticated skills to navigate in the world and to manage close relationships and interpersonal conflict. And uh, we're all a little rusty in that way. And, you know, there's a kind of learning curve to uh, finding your way in whatever this new normal will be. And to, uh, I'm thinking of folks who are entering, re-entering the dating arena, right? Like that's a, a whole new world where that's available to you in person. And uh, folks who are returning to the workplace for the first time in a long time. So it's, uh, there's gonna be a, a 
window of adjustment that is unique to each person, but common to all of us for probably a year or more. One thing both Alexander and Gorgons agree on is we shouldn't rush to put the pandemic behind us. Slow and steady will ensure we embrace and protect something we all need right now, hope. Yeah, it's so precious. Optimism is its the most powerful clinical tool we have available to us. It's the most powerful mover of social change. There's, to April's point, it's so fragile and you don't want to blow it, right? Because the cost of losing that optimism is it's harder to build it back up. Nicole Militello on how we've struggled. But that's not the end of the story. As weeks of quarantine stretch into months, more people than ever before needed mental health services. And to help them, we were going to have to improvise. And sometimes we came up with alternatives that work so well, we might actually keep them around even after the pandemic is gone. Here's Lauren Foltenberg. It's early in the pandemic, March, maybe April. Masks are still new and strange. The country is shut down. The panic is real. There's so much we don't know. This was the time period last year where our expecting parents were wondering what labor and delivery was going to look like in the hospital setting. And there were really strict hospital rules and regulations around who could enter the hospital, who could be in the labor and delivery room. This is Tracy Vozar on faculty at DU's Graduate School of Professional Psychology. And quite honestly, um, as a psychologist, I also didn't know what that was going to look like, and neither did my student clinicians. For weeks now, Vozar's been scrambling to get answers, or at the very least, offer comfort to her clients, patients who were pregnant and postpartum. She and her students are leading a support group via Zoom. We noticed during the second week that one of the parents who had attended the week prior was not there. And we were a little concerned, like, ah, I hope she's okay. I hope she comes back next week. And sure enough, the following week, she did come back. And in fact, she had given birth during the time period where she was away. And I'm still astounded that this mom, probably just a few days or within a week of giving birth, attended this group over Zoom. And then She shared her baby. The folks in the group were able to just enjoy that moment with her. And then she shared her experience of what it was like giving birth in the hospital during that time. And she was able to talk about, here's who was able to be there. Here's what it looked like. Here's what I was allowed to do. Here's what I wasn't allowed to do. And the other moms who were expecting in the group and, and the dads as well, this was information they needed. This was, you could almost like see everyone's shoulders drop a little bit at the end of the conversation, all of the stress and tension, all of the questions they had that we couldn't answer for them. Um, this parent was able to really support the others within the group and provided such an incredible um, um, amount of knowledge and support to the others. And it, it was powerful. Vozar, however, had just begun her work to bring ParentLine to Colorado and to campus. It's a program created by her friend and colleague, Dara Magani, who's at the University of San Francisco. Parents and parents-to-be needed mental health support for this new phase in their lives. But not everyone could access that support because they lived in rural areas where they were juggling multiple kids or jobs 
Parent Line was a way to meet them where they were. And Vozar now had the funding and infrastructure to launch a Colorado branch. This was December 2019. Obviously, within months, the community's needs changed. I think at the time, uh, I laugh about this a lot. Uh, <laughs> Got to keep a sense of humor about it. At the time, we thought we were transitioning to telehealth for a few weeks or maybe a month or two. And in a way, I'm, I'm sort of grateful that we didn't know. I think that would have been really overwhelming. And in another way, I think um, as a team, as a clinical team, we sort of thought like, okay, we'll pitch in and we'll give this 150% for the next several weeks while we're practicing virtually, not realizing that, that actually it was gonna be a much longer haul. And in retrospect, I probably would have slowed us down <laughs> and said, hmm, hang on, maybe we need to take this at a more gradual pace um, if I had known what we, the length of time we were going to be engaging virtually. So suddenly it, it was like going from 25 to 100 miles per hour. Not only did Vozar and her students have to get clients set up virtually, but their physical meeting space was closed too. All their legal forms, consent forms, they also had to be transferred online, where clients would have to learn to sign and return them through a secure portal. Some had never downloaded an app before, much less connected on Zoom. Remember, the parent line model, telehealth, wasn't meant to be a solution for everyone, but now it had to be. I remember a year ago now, almost exactly, um, having a meeting with my students and saying, I know you all need a break. How do we wanna handle this? And I'm so incredibly humbled and proud of my students for saying, you know, we're in this for our clients. We're gonna figure this out over the next few days and we're gonna transition everyone to telehealth. And so that um, commitment to our clients, that commitment to the well-being of the families that we're working with, I will always remember that moving forward and be so grateful and thankful for our particular students and how brave they've been. I know you've described yourself to me as a one-time telehealth skeptic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a hallmark of the work that we do in perinatal and infant and early childhood mental health is building relationships. We're very relationally oriented folks. We love being in the room. We love being in the community with our clients. We typically go um, into the home for home visits. We go to childcare settings. We go to physicians clinics. We go where our clients are. And it's very much about being in person together relationally. Uh, of course, that has not been possible over the course of the last year. So we've all had to be really creative about how we build and maintain relationships that are so central to the work that we do, but now over technology, which was something I was skeptical of before. And I've been really pleasantly surprised by what we've been able to accomplish. Hi everybody, my name is Sandra and I am one of the members of the WePlay team here at the University of Denver. And one Triumph, a collaboration with the Denver Children's Museum. Today I'm hoping to show you one of the many activities that you can do at your very own house. That's right, in your very own living room. A new website hosts a series of YouTube videos. They're ideas for parents stuck at home with their young children during lockdown. Coaching on everything from starting a baby on solid food 
to using household objects for engaging playtime. Um, these are two empty bottles that I took off the little plastic piece and made sure to seal. Um, the site, the blog, these activities, they'll all become a permanent part of ParentLine's services, even when things return to quote unquote normal. Um, so let's see what we can do. Yeah, are you trying to stack them? Let's see. In pre-pandemic times, Bozar and her students might be coaching parents from behind a one-way mirror, offering these sorts of tips through a cell phone or a bug in the ear. It has surprisingly lent itself very well to virtual and to Zoom in particular. Our clinicians turn their videos off, but they can still view the parent and child in interaction, and they can do so within the child's own home. So they get to see the parent and child in their home, in their own context, and they get a much better understanding, a much more nuanced understanding of what the family experiences. And it's proven to be really powerful. Yeah, it's access you wouldn't have been able to get before. We wouldn't. So we've thought of all sorts of things, like um, when families come to us saying that they're really struggling around mealtime or around bedtime. These are common things that families struggle with with young children. Now we can set up either a cell phone or a laptop within the room, and our clinician can be observing the mealtime or can be observing bedtime. And with our camera off, the screen looks dark and it's non-obtrusive. We're not non-intrusive. We're not, um, the child usually doesn't pick up on, well, someone's watching me eat my meal, but instead we can kind of be a little bit of a clinical fly on the wall to get a really great sense of what's happening within the home for the family. That's important, Bozar says, because COVID has introduced a new slate of challenges. ParentLine has seen an increase in substance abuse. Emotional and physical violence is on the rise too. Adults have to divide their attention and kids encounter fewer grown-ups who can spot any issues. That's not to mention stressors around finances, healthcare, job security, housing, discrimination, or racism. Our role to support their mental health and well-being is really um, hampered because we're up against these much greater, um, much more proximal stressors that they're experiencing. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that everybody has had a tough time and struggled during the pandemic here. It's got to be tough for psychologists to keep up a, a brave face and be that pillar of support when they are also struggling with these sorts of things. It is. Um, I think it, it's difficult on all of us. I think we're all facing our own challenges during the pandemic. As I mentioned early on, we thought this was going to be a much shorter term of moving to virtual and, and being at home. And uh, this long-term nature, this, this being in this existence for almost a year now, um, it, it is taking its toll. What we're noticing and observing and talking about is that um, psychologists in general, uh, we're experiencing Zoom fatigue. Um, our student clinicians, maybe even more so because they're seeing their clients over Zoom but they're also attending classes during over Zoom. They're getting supervision over Zoom. Um, it's not uncommon for our students to be on Zoom for 10, 11 hours out of the day. Um, that's challenging. It's just exhausting. 
And our students and ourselves as psychologists, you know, we're all experiencing the same stressors, challenges, grief, illness um, that everyone is. And in addition, we're trying to support and be there for our clients who are experiencing the same and in some instances, um, much worse. And so figuring out how to be present, have the energy, have the bandwidth to really show up for our clients uh, many hours out of the day, many days out of the week, uh, for weeks at a time, now almost a year. It's, it's something that none of us are equipped to know how to do. And so we're definitely paying more attention to how each other is doing. And we're trying to reach out to one another with services, with um, offers of support. What does this all mean for the future? For psychologists, for parents, for their families? Vozar is trying to figure that out. Clearly, she says, mental health and emotional support developmental support, there will still be a need, maybe a bigger need than ever before. All of that, those resources are going to be in greater demand. So helping to repair many of the ruptures that we've seen within our families, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see increased funding and support for substance use, for mental health um, widely defined for um, supporting families that have experienced difficulties surrounding domestic violence, um, supporting folks who have experienced housing, food, um, job and security. I think all of these supports that were already pretty, pretty worked thin are going to be needed to be bolstered in the coming years. Um, just based on the experiences that we've seen so far and knowing that um, families and individuals were not in the clear yet. There's going to be some, um, some repair to be done that's going to take longer than um, a short few weeks or months. I asked her about virtual Zoom therapy. Is this the future? Uh, there are pluses and minuses. And I think what um, myself and other clinicians and my students my colleagues and I are all talking about is what do we keep? What do we retain? And also um, I keep telling our students, given that this is the way they're, they're learning and how they're being trained while they're still in graduate school, the amount of innovation they're going to be able to promote in the coming years is just gonna be staggering. I'm really excited to see what they all come up with. And in the meantime, I think there are pieces that we'll definitely want to keep and then uh, myself, my student clinicians, our families, several are also hoping to get back at least sometimes to in-person work because there is that relational component, that being in the room with someone that I think we're all missing. Um, Zoom definitely has its limitations, but it also has some areas of strength. That's when Vozar thinks back to that support group from last year. That was a group that we weren't hosting before um, the pandemic. And I think about, gosh, that group was really powerful for those parents. And uh, it means a lot that we were able to provide that experience and that support for them. 
Is that why that story resonates with you so much? I think that's one of the reasons is um, looking back, it really validates all of the hard work and the the energy and the emotion that went into um, moving our, our clients from in-person to virtual. It was a huge undertaking. It took our entire faculty, all of our staff, everyone um, working together uh, when everyone was anxious, worried, concerned themselves about the state of our world and their families and their own well-being to really um, come together to do this hard work and to figure out how to do this really innovative model of therapy. And uh, moments like that really do make it feel like it was all worth it because we found a way for parents to support one another even um, within their own homes, within um, quarantine. And that meant a lot. That was Lauren Fultenberg on how we've adapted. Virtual mental health services like ParentLine have been critical in helping people through serious challenges. But in those moments when the little everyday struggles of isolation have felt particularly heavy and lonely, your therapist might just be your pet. Whether they were cuddled up next to you while you cried it out, mopping up the tears with their fur, giving you an excuse to take a walk, or acting as a silent sounding board, animals have been writing this out right there with us. I talked to Philip Tedeschi, director of the Institute for the Human-Animal Connection, to find out more. At the University of Denver, school is back in session. While many are still learning remotely, a few have been back on campus. And while incidents of COVID-19 exposures are low, some students have had to write out short quarantines to keep themselves and the community safe. DU is doing what it can to make quarantine as comfortable as possible for these students. But it can be a tough experience even under the best circumstances. That's where one of DU's most loved therapists steps in. Well, Samara is a, a, a black Labrador retriever that has worked with me at the University of Denver for about eight years now. And she has worked with a lot of different students and in a lot of different parts of the university. So primarily, she's been a dog that's helped us teach these concepts in the Graduate School of Social Work's Animal Assisted Social Work um, Certificate Program. We're often, you know, it's in, it's informal, just her presence on campus where she's interacting with students um, who are missing their own animals at, at school and homesick and, and those sorts of things. So she's done a lot of different roles and has played a, a pretty significant um, role in a lot of people's lives. In fact, I think she, more people know Samara probably than, than they do me. Uh, this year, however, she has been asked uh, to support some of the students that have been in quarantine. When students find themselves struggling to balance quarantine with classwork, feeling worn down and navigating the loneliness of isolation, a new program allows them to request a visit with Samara and Philip. Samara has this unique ability when she sees somebody coming to her, um, she will run to them. Um, and greet them that way. And that's usually how it starts. And then we just um, walk to somewhere outside and sit and use that time to um, get to know each other. We don't consider it necessarily a therapy session as much as we do a 
bit of canine moral support. Um, but it's been really interesting in part because often these are persons I've never met before and Samara's never met, but in often in short period of time, um, it has provided a very useful interaction that allows for, you know, the ability to see around the corner and, and be a bit more hopeful about, uh, about, you know, kind of post-quarantine, um, you know, sense of just a sense of well-being that can come from, you know, believing that there'll be a better day. Lately, Samara has been joined by Dew's new therapy pup in training, Juniper, to do this work. And it's clear that what they're doing is genuinely making a difference in the lives of Dew's students. One of Samara's new friends shared this with us. This wasn't my first time being in quarantine, but I have never felt that alone or anxious, she writes. I was so defeated from being isolated again, but I knew I had a lot to look forward to with Samara visiting me. Actually, seeing Samara gave me the boost I needed to make it through quarantine, and Phil was so nice, too. I didn't even know I could do this, but it was so helpful and definitely had a positive impact on my mental health while I was in quarantine. One thing Samara really makes clear is that animals have been one of the unsung superheroes of this pandemic. Whether it's your cat or dog, bird, fish, you name it, companion animals have provided the support that has kept many of us going through a truly challenging time. You know, we have the role of therapy animals that are really designated, you know, to be working in very specific settings, for example, in stress relief events or something like that on campus. But we've also been really interested, and maybe the biggest story here is our pets. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that's such a big story is just the sheer size, the prevalence of uh, animals in our lives in this area. And I think, you know, in many cases, people kind of underestimate this, that we would probably find in two thirds of all homes, for example, that have children, we also have animals or in over 300 million homes in the United States, people are living with these animals as parts of their family. They really see them as connected members of their family systems. So we have more animals in US homes than all the people in Europe combined, right? And, and yet it's not so obvious or maybe not so in our face because we've kind of gotten accustomed to having them in our lives. And so I think one of the big questions during this period of time is we've seen this really large uptick in people wanting animals in their life. And that very phenomenon is a really interesting question in and of itself. But, you know, what we're trying to study and what I think maybe is the big story here in relation to human-animal connection is what's going on in those relationships. What are the actual interactions and how do they improve our health? So I think that might be the really the biggest and most interesting element of this uh, this period of time. For me, that looks like spending all day chatting with my cat, April, when I'm not in Zoom meetings. Huh? Well, actually, when I'm in Zoom meetings too, she never misses an opportunity to swish her tail in my face in front of my coworkers. We argue about why she can't have any of my lunch, seek out sunny spots together, and end the day with stretches for her and yoga for me. I sound like an absolute weirdo, I know, but she has, without question, helped me get through a full year of isolation. And I bet plenty of others can say the same about their pets, too. So people have, you know, their own unique relationships with their animals that sometimes it's, you know, the humor that an animal might bring to your life and this kind of recognition that um, 
they're always up to something and that their lives are interesting too. And that if you're around, they'll welcome you or invite you to participate in that. So lots of people talk about playing more um, and play is a therapeutic strategy. And we, we study that actually as a feature of trauma-informed care. Um, in fact, the course that I teach at, at the University of Denver in East Africa, one of the most profound elements of it is studying orphaned elephants, um, where one of the things I've learned about trauma has been that these orphans use play as one of the ways to survive the ordeals of at times you know, the difficulties of having lost some of their family members. Tedeschi says this isn't unique to elephants. In fact, all mammals turn to play in some of their toughest moments as a way to cope and heal. And so with the baby elephants, what they do is the largest one lies down and the other babies lie on top. And they do this kind of elephant dog pile and they wrestle around in the mud and they're touching and um, bumping each other and rolling around. What goes on internally and is that it alters the interpersonal neurobiology of those individuals that are playing. And so it activates oxytocin systems, our dopamine system. So we literally start to feel better during that physical contact. So for those of you who, you know, lay on your floor and wrestle with your dog or, or you're playing some kind of game with your animal, often it might, you know, to the outside eye look like, a, you know, all fun and games. But really one of the things that's happening is your brain is literally um, changing and it act, is activating this part of our, of our system. The same thing happens in our connection with other people when we are interacting uh, in certain ways. Um, and it also happens with our companion animals in the same way. We're likely to be more optimistic and we're likely to feel um, calmer. We're likely to feel more likely to um, feel positive about things. And that's exactly how we're using that strategy in a therapeutic setting. But luckily for us, it's also happening in, in our pet interactions, our, our companion animal interactions as well. So, so I think that's you know, that's part of the reason we're seeing so many people um, want these interactions and have them and benefit from them and probably are likely to not want to give them up at the end of this period of time. And dogs in particular have a special way of making us build strong support systems to weather tough times. That's because after hundreds of years by our sides, they get us, sometimes even better than we get ourselves. They have been co-evolving with us for a long time. So the species recognizes a lot about our species. Um, and so they know us well. And, and that turns out that that means they recognize all different kinds of things that people do as significant for communication and getting along and relationship. We actually believe that these are the very traits that resulted kind of through a selection orientation of animals that want to have relationships with people. And as it turns out, same when we look through the other you know, end of the telescope, people do the same thing, that we're also quite observant of dogs. We're getting to know them as a species better. And you know what the research uh, suggests is that dogs are really now the smartest of social animals relative to people, that they know us better than any other species. And, 
and we are are doing the same thing with them. So we recognize vocalizations and body postures and and respiration rates and all different types of communication. And people have become pre-pandemic, I think, very lazy communicators really with one another, where you know it's not uncommon for you to live with a roommate or a partner or a spouse or you know even your own children and not recognize major things that are going on in their lives. If they don't say, I'm having a really bad day, sometimes we don't choose to recognize it or, or don't recognize it. But our companion animals make everything but spoken and written words relevant to their relationships with us. And so one of the things I think we're maybe are learning is through our observation and building into our repertoire more than just words, right? Do we actually need somebody to tell us they're in trouble um, in order for us to be able to respond to them? You know, that is one of the things our animals are teaching us that in fact, we can see it. We can recognize it. And in the case of our dogs, we actually believe they feel it and that these capacities for response make us more empathic, more sensitive to one another. And, in, and it's not that uncommon for people to say, my dog you know, comes and comforts me more quickly than my husband does. It's not just the relationships that we form with our pets that matter, though. It's also the relationships we form with each other. In a time of extreme isolation, disconnect, and stress, humans need connection more than ever connection with each other and with the world outside our living rooms. Dogs, it turns out, are great at facilitating that. They give us a reason to get outside and exercise, to wake up every morning with purpose, and to stop for a friendly hello. When we unpackage just the presence of an animal in our lives and the ways in which it might shape our capacity for interacting with the world around us, what we find is that there is a lot of health benefits related to having animals with us. And what we also now recognize is there's some psychological or emotional benefits related to that. And that, you know, we've all probably said things like, oh, you need to go for a walk, meaning something about being outside and interacting with the living world outside improves our mood or improves our view of the world around us. And, and, what I think is happening there is very unique to um, one of the ways animals fit into our lives so that we're more likely to have these beneficial activities and then we're also then more likely to have interactions with others that, that are beneficial. So it's not uncommon that somebody might actually get to know their neighbor's animal more quickly than they know their neighbor's name. And yet that may build that connection and that in some cases when we um, you know, have done many experiments like handed a leash with Samara on one end and a student on the other and ask them to walk across campus. Uh, and then we do that without a dog present. One of the things that we find is that there's about twice as much social interaction. You know, and it also takes twice as long to get across campus um, because they're stopping and they're interacting with others. And so even during this period of time where we've had social distancing and masks on, these um, create these behaviors in us that allow for this connection point. After all, animals aren't just statues or art sitting in our homes looking cute. In fact, Tedeschi says, research shows that in so many ways they are just like us. Living, breathing, sentient creatures with opinions, relationships, needs, wants, emotions, and more. 
Because of that, we relate to them. We see ourselves in them and their experiences. That's something therapists are taking advantage of. I'll just give you maybe one example. Um, you know, if a dog is going out and interacting with a new dog that it's never met before, um, and we frame that experience as getting to meet a new person or build a new friendship, one of the things that we could do is we could talk about what it takes for that uh, that um, dog to meet their new you know friend next door, friend down the block. And what are the skills? What are the ways in which that went down? How did it go? And how, what are the things we need to do to make friendships or have or have enduring friendships? Dogs are highly affiliative, and in fact, about you know ninety plus percent of the interactions they have with one another are intended to demonstrate that they want to have friendships, that they want to get along. And so if you watch dogs very carefully, a lot of what they're doing is really useful for their capacity for this friendship. And when we can bring that conversation in uh, into a therapy session, we have a different dimension or a different way to talk about that. It's also less... Um, provocative in some ways because it's it's something that that they these animals can do so naturally and, and is right in front of us. COVID-19 has shifted so much for us. Most of those shifts have been really difficult. We've lost loved ones, learned to be alone more than humans were ever meant to, lost jobs, lost the feeling of being connected, and so much more. But maybe when it comes to our pets, we can say we've gained something truly beautiful. Before we say goodbye, we wanted to leave you with something that's brought us some hope and joy over the last year. That's the words of Colorado Poet Laureate Bobby Lefebvre performing a piece titled Here, Where We Are the Flowers, that reflects on life in isolation, but also looks to the promise of tomorrow. One day, the globe is spinning, we are smiling or not, mundane or magic normalcy walks on two feet, autopilot guides our way. Things are the way we know them to be. New lovers braid their fingers together for the first time as the sun sets. The Zócalo is full. The mercado is loud and abundant. The city is a body living and breathing. We go about our day. The cumpleañera blows out her birthday candles. We hug our grandmothers with reckless abandon. Every seat at the dinner table is full of friends and family. We are laughing, mouths flung open, words unapologetically traveling upon the wind. Vivacity abounds. The next day, the globe stops. Together we furrow our brow, stumble off kilter, our hearts become ticking time bombs, panic begets panic, all of us running in place, the unknown tethers itself to our collective consciousness, our psyche, a lone wolf howling at the moon. We retreat, replace wings with worry, trade the social for the solitary, make an enemy of touch, distance becomes our god, six feet apart running away from six feet under, we forget how to look each other in the eye, survival becomes a dreary song we play on repeat, our hands are chapped from reading one too many headlines, then slowly, together, 
We attempt to construct a new language, knowing words like our leaders are failing us. We begin to speak in statistics, but here, the numbers are lives, the percentages are people. Meanwhile, the curve is rising, the crescendo, a destination uncharted. The corporeal try and coax their jettisoned souls back into their bodies, and there are so many bodies. Blood, bones, flesh, wrinkles, birthmarks, tattoos, dimples, eyes, scars. Existence is upended, a hemisphere uprooted, the earth confused by all the graves here where land is acknowledged but never returned, grief morphing into trauma, collective mourning, curses shouted toward the heavens, candles lit where life should be. How did we become bygone? We've all lost something, found ourselves digging for unknown things in places we have never been, territory uncharted, jutting emotions, a compass pointing in directions we have never traversed, anguish operationalized. But they who have a reason to live can bear almost any how. Let us return to the circle, this holy hoop of hope that is unending. Let us lick each other's wounds, offer one another the medicine of mutual aid. Let our mourning morph into ritual. Let our grief be a tender mercy. Let these tears be libation. Let us become the altar. Something living, something unfixed, something capable of transforming. Let us be both the memory and the imagination. The stewards of bridging yesterday to tomorrow. Let us remember so that we never forget. And here at this monument, this memorial embodied, we will learn to harness and activate our anger, channel and transform our anxiety. Here we will exist unafraid afraid to sit in our sadness, to allow for it to fester until it transmutes into healing. Let our bruises become a balm. Let our gaping wounds become mouths that translate the pain. It is okay to not be okay. Let us bathe in our brokenness, evolve in our emptiness, faith keeping us forward facing. And in this place we see but have yet to arrive upon, let us create new meaning, social reconstruction in our hands here at this human memorial, at this monument in the flesh where we are the flowers, where we are the prayers. Let us say and remember all their names. Let us shout our own into the void so loudly that the unborn waiting somewhere in the cosmos will smile celestially and proud, and we will walk together across time and space with understanding and empathy, arms linked together, experience endured, healing and heard, and life will bend into tomorrow with promise. I promise. Thanks for joining us for this very special episode of Radio Ed. We hope in these stories you've found some time and space to reflect on a year that will surely stick with us all. For more from our guests and to learn about some of the other ways the University of Denver has rallied to support its community during the pandemic, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. Lauren Fultenberg and Nicole Militello joined me in co-producing this episode of Radio Ed and contributed reporting. I'm Alyssa Hurst, Radio Ed's executive producer. This is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.